Welcome to the McQuaid Arcade Podcast. I'm Barney. And I'm Biggs. Long before the endlessly varied playlists of Spotify and Apple Music, and even before the infinite catalog of the illicit MP3s on Napster, it was a very different time for music. In the 80s, you generally had terrestrial radio, shout out to WGCI Chicago, triple dot that I, and tapes or CDs. In those halcyon days, the word album had real meaning. Why? Well, you bought an album, and that was basically all you had to listen to for a while. You got to listen to it from start to finish on a cassette tape, and it wasn't really until we had moved over to CDs that the idea of skipping became a readily available thing, though I will say that our elders were actually acutely aware of this ability because that was present with vinyl records. But it was a feature in a way, because you really got to see the breadth and the depth, or often the lack thereof, of a musician or a group, and there was an additional level of artistry to putting together a cohesive album. It really could be an incredible journey. On the other hand, however, it was kind of limiting. You had one artist, or maybe a couple if you were lucky to have some good guests featured on some songs, but that would be it for the week, or the month, or until the next time you got to the Kmart, or maybe a Sam Goody if you were cool, to carefully peruse the music section for your next album. But there was one format that was way ahead of its time, and admittedly, that might be a bit of a euphemism for a pretty nerdy thing. Movie soundtracks. With a soundtrack, you generally had a multitude of artists, genres, and styles all around a theme, a really good movie that you enjoyed. So in addition to allowing you to relive aspects of that movie in a time when clips were not readily available and YouTube sounded like something used to fix a bicycle tire by yourself, movie soundtracks gave us the ability to carry around a part of the movie and enjoy it over and over again. They also had a perhaps unintended consequence. They exposed us to a huge variety of music, often things we might never have considered listening to before. I think the best evidence for this, the best example of it happening, is one of our favorite movies of all time, and that's Predator. There was a score. There was the Alan Silvestri soundtrack to the movie. I don't think either of us owned that. Uh, I mean, we might have. We were little weirdos, we, and we loved the movie, so we might have bought it. But there was a scene where this song, Long Tall Sally by Little Richard, was playing. They were in the helicopter, and we loved the scene, and that made us love the song. And so, in order to have it, we went out and bought Little Richard's Greatest Hits, which for two little kids, you two, you know, 10, 12 year old kids in 1987, kind of weird, <laughs> but it totally introduced us to new music. And, you know, I grew up with a lot of music in my house, a lot of different styles of music, a lot of different tastes. And knowing my dad and his taste in music, I can almost guarantee that I had heard Little Richard before or been exposed to music very similar to his. And it never, you know, I never appreciated it. I never wanted to listen to it. Until there was the context of this movie that we loved, right? Totally. Rendezvous points and radio freaks are indicated and fixed. AWACS contact on four-hour intervals. Who's our backup? No such thing, old buddy. This is a one-way ticket. Once we cross that border, we're on our own. <laughs> this is getting better, better minutes. Before we officially get started with our picks here, I have been informed by my wife that I need to mention her pick for worst soundtrack of all time, and that is the soundtrack for the movie Cocktail, which has two of her least favorite songs ever, 
Don't Worry, Be Happy, and Kokomo by the Beach Boys. I have to agree. I kind of can't stand either of those songs. I don't hate them with the the fiery passion that she does, <laughs> but uh, I needed to get that out of the way before we start. That is so funny. I actually loved that movie, as goofy as it was, and I loved the soundtrack. I listened to that over and over and over. In fact, though, interestingly, I tried to, not too long ago, listen to Kokomo again and found out that you cannot really stream it anywhere. None of the major services have it. And as we're going to talk about in a few minutes, this actually turns out to be fairly common. But I have to say, thank you, YouTube, for saving the day. You can find almost anything you can imagine on YouTube for free. Yeah, I had to go to YouTube to listen to one of my favorite songs on one of the soundtracks that I'm talking about. There were a lot of potential choices. One of them, one of the soundtracks I wanted to maybe talk about, Say Anything, which was fantastic. It was a great album. The whole album is just gone. Like, you can't stream it anywhere. I didn't end up going with that soundtrack for this episode. We're going to do this again because there's way too many great soundtracks to talk about to squeeze them into one episode. So we're just going to talk about a few. For this episode, one of the soundtracks I want to talk about is from our... I think it's safe to say if it's not our favorite vampire movie, it is tied for favorite with Fright Night. We did a show about both of those. Uh, it's The Lost Boys, which has a pretty great soundtrack and a pretty varied soundtrack. Unfortunately, kind of what I consider to be almost the main song from the movie, which is a cover of The Doors, People Are Strange by Echo and the Bunnymen. There are actually a lot of covers on this album. It's not available streaming. The rest of the album is, but that one's gone. And I say it's the main, it feels like the main song from the movie. The The real theme is the song Cry Little Sister, which I'll talk about in a minute. But this feels like the kind of the backbone of the movie, right? Because we hear it at the very beginning when Sam and Michael and their mom, they are first coming into their new town in California with all the crazy people. And then we also hear it at the end of the movie, the very end of the story. So it bookends the whole story of the movie. And uh, yeah, it's fantastic. We heard this long before we even knew it was a cover, long before we knew there was a version, original version by The Doors. Turns out Joel Schumacher, who directed this movie, loved The Doors, loved Jim Morrison. If you'll remember, in the Vampire's Lair, in that like cave, that sunken uh, resort or whatever it was, there was a giant poster or mural picture portrait of Jim Morrison. I forgot about that. That is really neat. As much as he probably would have loved to, uh, I don't think Joel Schumacher could have gotten, could have afforded the original version of the song for the soundtrack, which apparently had a pretty tight budget, which led to some wheeling and dealing with Joel Schumacher and some of the bigger names he ended up getting on the album. He agreed to direct some of their music videos and stuff for the rights to use the songs on the soundtrack. And I read a great article in the AV Club about this soundtrack, and it just had a great take on the phenomenon of movie soundtracks in general back then it says when no one could make their own without a blank maxell a dozen individual records and a whole lot of patience the movie soundtrack was still moving considerable units naturally the impulse was to cram as many potential radio hits on there as you could regardless of whether say marty mcfly would actually listen to huey lewis as long as they had a decent backbeat and didn't get in the way, you could load up your film with songs by any artist who needed a little extra push. And if that meant your soundtrack ended up being 50% filler, well, fans still had to buy the album to get those three songs they really loved. Besides, where else are they going to get Thomas Newman's 90 seconds of creepy carnival music? <laughs> which, is <laughs> which is literally one of the tracks on the Lost Boys soundtrack. Creepy carnival music. And it's that kind of vibe. I, when I was doing research for this episode... I saw a lot of people say, like, I remembered this soundtrack being 
creepier, like that carnival music and like Cry Little Sister, which has a really pretty different tone than just about everything else on the album. Nothing else has quite that spooky and strange kind of vibe, and that's what a lot of people apparently remember the soundtrack being. But again, it's it's varied. It's 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 not all like that. And you kind of forget until you listen to it again. It's got like in excess on it and stuff. Uh, Cry Little Sister, like I said, is sort of the official theme song of the movie. It was written by G. Tom Mack. He wrote and performed it. I read an interview with him where he was talking about writing the song and how the process ended up being different than other times he's written for movies. He said, they were already shooting the film at the time, so they sent me a script to read. Up to that point, I'd always looked at a cut of the film before I'd write the music, but as it turned out, I got inspired by reading the script and the events of my own life and wrote the song. He then got a call from Joel Schumacher, ecstatic, saying, quote, you nailed my theme song to the Lost Boys. He went on to say, I can't believe you wrote this without seeing a frame of the film. And G. Tom Max says, I always say that if I had seen the film first, I would have probably not written Cry Little Sister. That is really cool. Possibly the, the most iconic scene in the movie. Tim Capello, the sexy sax man, <laughs> uh, the AV club called him the living embodiment of the saxophone's inherent eroticism. That I hope will be on his tombstone. <laughs> that is the highest compliment possible. This album has a lot of of saxophone solos, but this is is definitely the king. The songs I still believe it's this amazing scene. They're on the boardwalk at night. This glistening Adonis <laughs> adorned in chains playing a saxophone. Uh, this is the scene where we see Jamie Gertz star for the first time. And like Michael in the movie, we were transfixed. This scene is was so surreal and so amazing. We saw this and we were like, is this what California is? Is this what it's like? Because we have to go. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Yeah. Everyone out at night. Yes. Jamming to crazy otherworldly music with fires lit. It was. It was romantic and beautiful and really must have been hard to pull off. Like somehow they pulled it off and it felt believable and cool and otherworldly and not totally cheesy and ridiculous like they were on a soundstage. Yeah. I, I watched this uh, this show on Netflix called Warren Stories, W-R-N. It's people telling stories of important, meaningful articles of clothing that they have. And one of those p- pieces of clothing was the leather cod piece <laughs> that Tina Turner gave Tim Capello when he played with her. He was an incredibly prolific saxophone player. He toured and recorded with people like Tina Turner and Peter Gabriel, a ton of big names. He made a living as a professional saxophone player for a long time. He was talking about how back then every band had a saxophone player until all of a sudden nobody did. No but saxophones were done. They were out of of pop music completely and he was understandably devastated. He fell on really hard times. And then at about the, he said, not the 10 year or 20 year, 25 year, he said it was right around the 30 year anniversary of Lost Boys, which if you do the math, I feel like lines up pretty well with the resurgence of the everything 80s in popularity, right? Mm. He started getting calls, people going, oh my God, you're the guy from Lost Boys. Can you come perform? And the happy ending of the story was now he's, he's performing again. He's in demand. He's donning the cod piece yet again. Amazing. Right? It's a really cool story. There are some pretty big names on this soundtrack. We have In Excess. Roger Daltrey sings uh, a cover of Elton John's Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. Because, get it? Mm. Mm, vampires. <laughs> um, 
Then there's what was always my favorite song on this soundtrack growing up by Lou Graham of Foreigner fame. It's called Lost in the Shadows. It's played during the sort of motorcycle chase scene on the beach when David tells Michael to follow him. You know, watching the movie, the, the scene just felt so dangerous and scary and exhilarating. And I got to tell you, listening to this song to this day makes me remember so well how exactly that scene in this movie made me feel. It takes me right back. This is a great soundtrack. Not everything on it has aged particularly well, and some of it does feel a bit random. The AV Club, I think, sums it up perfectly. They say, It's intermittently cool, ultimately kind of scattered, and more than a little cheesy. It's the saxophone solo of soundtrack. (laughs) I love it. There's a little meta activity going on there. I really dig that. One of my all-time favorite cassette tape soundtracks, and I want to emphasize that because that's how I can still imagine them. In my little bedroom, I had that faux wood-paneled three-drawer <laughs> cassette drawers, tape yep. holder. You know, and that, there were they were. This was in the middle one. I had two of them stacked up. And one of my all-time favorites was fittingly one of my all-time favorite movies, and that is The Blues Brothers. This soundtrack is absolutely packed with amazing music. From Gimme Some Lovin', which was a top 20 Billboard hit, to She Caught the Katie, kind of a softer, more soulful song that I really liked. Though, honestly, I would never, ever listen to anything even remotely like this outside of that soundtrack, right? This was not music I would have sought out. Of course, Aretha Franklin's Think is completely unforgettable performance. And then the one that really sticks with me to this day was Cab Calloway's big band rendition of Minnie the Moocher. This, again, kind of very weird to my ear at the time, but so interesting and so beautifully produced that that song really stuck with me, and I wanted to hear it over and over. Finally, the the version that I mean, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi sing, you know, because they're they're doing the music here. I mean, this is more than a soundtrack. I mean, these are actually performances yeah. that we're seeing in the film as well. But their version of Sweet Home Chicago, that is the definitive version to me. That's the one I love, and it really showcases them as musicians. I read a wonderful review online that told the story of the bass guitar great Duck Dunn, who said that neither Belushi nor Aykroyd were very talented musicians, but he gave them all the credit in the world for using their celebrity status to introduce the blues to an audience that otherwise would never have been exposed to it. Well, that was certainly true for me, so I think he's spot on. Yeah, he definitely is. Neither of us would have listened to this music if not for this movie, and it's so cool, right? Because it's it's the entire album, it's the entire experience that was new to us, and we loved it because of the context of the movie. We talked before about, you know, a song on a soundtrack introducing us to something new. This was the whole soundtrack. It was amazing. My other soundtrack I wanted to talk about in this episode is Rocky IV. Arguably the best Rocky movie. Absolutely the most 80s Rocky movie, right? Because Rocky boxes communism. <laughs> communism personified. It's so true. The, the soundtrack is pretty perfect. And there's one song in particular that I feel really captures, really exemplifies the spirit they're going for with the soundtrack and the movie itself. It's by Survivor, great band from here in Chicago, who, of course, gave us Eye of the Tiger in Rocky Three. But unlike that song, this song was specifically commissioned 
by Sylvester Stallone for this movie. Nice. Yes. And to truly do it justice, I would like to perform a dramatic reading of the lyrics here for our listeners on the show, if I may. Oh, please. This is Burning Heart by Survivor. Two worlds collide, rival nations. It's a primitive clash, venting years of frustrations. Bravely we hope against all hope. There is so much at stake, seems our freedom's up against the ropes. (laughs) (laughs) Shh, this is serious. (laughs) Does the crowd understand? Is it East versus West or man against man? Does any nation stand alone? In the burning heart! (laughs) Just about to burst, there's a quest for answers, an unquenchable thirst in the darkest night. Rising like a spire in the burning heart, the unmistakable fire. Woo! I love it. In the... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm done. No, I wanted to include that last part because that was almost the name of the song, The Unmistakable Fire. But they ended up changing it after a suggestion by Sylvester Stallone to Burning Heart. It's the name of the song. He... I watched a great interview on YouTube with the founder of Survivor who was talking about how Stallone wanted them to make the song and how they all thought, you know, since they're making it specifically for the movie, everything, every line has to be perfect. And Stallone loved it. He thought it was great. But he thought it was just something, there was just something missing. And being the 80s action superstar that he is, uh, he thought maybe adding an explosion <laughs> to the song would uh, <laughs> would give it that little extra... Oomph. And, and they did. He was like, uh, yeah, it's like a pretty good song, I guess, but nothing blows up. Maybe you put an explosion in there. And they literally put an explosion sound effect in the song. It goes like, in the burning heart. There's like a, they added it. And it's perfect. It's so 80s. It's so right? perfect. Like I said, this is definitely the most 80s Rocky movie by far. And that's captured so well in the score. So this is the first Rocky movie that wasn't scored by Bill Conti. He, when this movie was being made, he was busy doing the score for, as we mentioned in our episode about that great movie, The Karate Kid, one and two. So Vince DeColt, some of his music from the original movie uh, shows up in this movie, but he didn't write anything for this movie. Vince DeCola did, and his training montage music is part of what makes this the, the greatest training montage in an entire movie series basically built around great iconic training montages. And it's this 80s sounding touch that that is just perfect. So, you know, during this montage, we have Rocky out in the wilds of Siberia doing like sit-ups in the rafter of an old barn and chopping wood while Drago, Dolph Lundgren, is working out in this like state-of-the-art computerized Russian gym and the music, it, it captures both of those so, so well. There's this driving, synthy sort of beat. But then it's also simultaneously kind of like traditionally inspirational. Mm. It's really perfect. And uh, I'm glad he ended up doing the score for this because it worked out so well. He just nailed it. Probably the, the most well-known song on the soundtrack is by James Brown, Living in America. That's probably the biggest mainstream song on here, right? That people are familiar with. That, of course, is the big musical number right before we get to see beloved character Apollo Creed just straight up murdered <laughs> in the middle of the ring after this fun James Brown musical number. 
And that was cool too, because that was another one of those songs that I feel like, because it was on a soundtrack, introduced us to a new style of, of music, James Brown. We weren't exactly listening to James Brown very much back then in 1985 as 10-year-olds. We just associated James Brown with that um, that old, <laughs> the old Eddie Murphy SNL skit. <laughs> with the Too hot, tub. hot in the hot tub. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's other great stuff on here. It's a great soundtrack. I have a few of the songs on here on the playlist that I run to, and it is as inspirational now as it was back in 1985. I love it. And, you know, speaking of inspirational soundtracks and ones that I think inspire you to get fit and work out, one of my other favorite ones was something we've talked about in pretty good detail in a previous episode, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That soundtrack, right, is just so iconic and filled with so many great songs. That is something we listened to. I mean, I think we wore out the tape. We listened to it over and over and over on our boombox, playing basketball to it in the summertime. We just put it in the garage, put it and play, you know, all those great songs. And, of course, we'd all go crazy when Turtle Power came on and you kind of got a second wind and you kept playing basketball. It was the best. So that that was such a great album that had a lot of kind of new music and rap styles, but also was still eclectic enough to stretch your mind a little bit. Yeah, you absolutely wore out that tape. I remember that. <laughs> That's how much basketball you played back then. The tape got so thin that it just broke. <laughs> And I feel like that's one of the very few times I've ever actually seen that happen to a cassette tape just from normal wear and tear. Well, we've talked a lot about great soundtracks that we loved and still remember, are still inspired by. I'm going to close out the show with a a far sadder tale of soundtrack heartbreak. And like so many important stories from our childhood, it takes place at our local Kmart. <laughs> our grimy old local Kmart where we purchased uh, many of our toys and I would say pretty much all of our cassette tapes. In, in later days when we moved on to CDs, you know, there were other fancier places we went to like Borders. Remember the books, Borders mm. bookstore? Mm-hmm. We'd buy CDs there. This was long before that though. I was at Kmart with my dad browsing the cassette tapes as we used to do. And in the soundtrack section, I came across this tape and I couldn't, Kind of couldn't believe what I was seeing at first because it wasn't from any particular movie. It had uh, a few songs from Rocky IV. It had the Goonies theme song by Cyndi Lauper. It had Danger Zone from Top Gun. It had a bunch of stuff from Footloose. It had all of like my favorite songs from my favorite movies. It's the greatest hits of the greatest hits. It was the greatest cassette tape ever forged by human hands. <laughs> and if that wasn't enough, somehow, for some reason, well, I found out the reason eventually, but it was cheaper than the other cassette tapes. But I forget whatever the price was back then. This was a few bucks cheaper. And I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is the last tape I ever need to buy. <laughs> well, then I get it home and I get it in the boombox, and immediately I can tell something is wrong. It wasn't Danger Zone by Kenny Loggins. It was Danger Zone in the style of Kenny Loggins. It wasn't uh, The Goonies by Cindy Lauper. It was The Goonies made popular by Cindy Lauper. That's literally what it said on the tape. It didn't say who sung it. Like, I don't know. It could have been the employees at Kmart for all I know. I don't know. All I know is it said not who you want to be singing it. That's basically what, what the liner notes said. It was pretty bad, but I still listened to it. Because like you said, when you got a new tape, I mean, that's what you had for who knows how long. 
And even though they were knockoffs, it was convenient to have all these songs on one tape. But uh, yeah, I've tried to find it. I've tried to Google this tape and find it, but Googling Kmart soundtrack cassette, various artists, all the stuff I've tried has just pulled up other stuff. Not this magical, amazing, terrible tape that I remember. Do you know what I did find though? I found the actual, like literal Kmart soundtrack, the cassettes, this big thing of cassettes that they would play in Kmart, which it's kind of cool. I mean, I was, I might listen to that, but you're shopping in Kmart. You're like, wow, I really like the soundtrack here. Yeah. Mm. It's a weird, (laughs) cool thing to have, but uh, no luck. Not the actual tape that caused so much sadness so many years ago. A very hard landing into the world of cover bands. Whew. Growing up in the 80s, as our dear listeners know so well, movies were a critically important part of our lives. They represented big ideas, new experiences, and quotable moments that measurably affected the way we thought and spoke. But they were not portable at that time. There were no GIFs, or GIFs as young people like to call them, to send and quickly relive a favorite moment. Instead, we often had magnificent compilations of the music of movies, both scores and soundtracks, that could, with the power of a Sony Walkman, become the soundtrack to our lives. We could relive those moments, re-experience the feelings, and perhaps most importantly, learn about the artists and genres that were far from our somewhat unworldly and callow tastes. They expanded our minds and taught us things. And for that, movie soundtracks have remained near and dear to our hearts, minds, and ears. And on that note, stay limber.